SequelCast 2 and Friends is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, go to greenlitpodcast.com. I'll give you the Stay number. away! I always have, because I'm your dutiful son. And you're my loving mother. So please, give me the night. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2 and Friends, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi, and this week uh, we're part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. More information, greenlitpodcast.com. That's not the fucking website either. God damn it. <laughs> it's all good. It's one of those mornings. I don't need to say the website because it's in the intro to the show, in the clip. Okay. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2 and Friends, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is Alex. Psycho Killer, Norman Bates, and Thrasher. I'm your mother, Norman. And we're talking about Psycho II, I mean Psycho 2, directed by Richard Franklin. No, you pronounce it wrong. It's Psycho Actually, that's not bad, yeah. Uh, directed by Richard Franklin, written by Tom Holland, based on characters created by Robert Block, the stars Anthony Perkins, Vera Miles, Meg Tilly, Robert Loggia, and a very sweaty Dennis Franz, and has a score by Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, the cinematographer is Dean Kundi, which is, is pretty interesting. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but he did, like, Back to the Future. Um, I think Jurassic Park, even. He did, like, all this yeah. iconic 80s and 90s Alan. stuff. And lately, he's been doing the direct-to-video live-action Scooby-Doo uh, movies. Hey, why not? Yeah, the the talent here is pretty impressive. Like, this is like, I mean, the way I feel about this movie is that this is a a flick where you know you got the main star back from the first film, which is a you know huge deal, and all of these other supporting roles could have just been little throwaway, you know, lesser-known character actors. But we've got Vera Miles, Meg Tilly, uh, Robert Loggia, Dennis Franz. I mean, this is like a killer cast right here. And then, you know, you got cinematographer Dean Cundey, um, uh, Tom Holland, very great screenwriter, Dean Cundey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a great lineup. And um, it's one of the many contributions that makes it such a, in my opinion, damn good film. Killer cast. I see what you did there. Thrasher, uh, oh. any thoughts on, any kind of initial thoughts on Psycho 2? Because it's been a while since we've done a sequel to such an old movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a huge gap, and, and and as I understand it, Hitchcock was resistant to any sequels being made of his work. His he died in 1980. This came out in uh, oh, 83. So okay. His body his sure, body sure. was still cooling. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure there were lots <laughs> lots of people at the studio just waiting for Hitchcock to be out of the way so they could make this. And 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 what amazes me because I'm sure from the studio's perspective, this is just a shallow attempt to cash in on the name Psycho and make a quick mm. buck. Mm-hmm. But this was worth watching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well. We'll get into that. I think the first time I saw Psycho 2, I mean, these holds hold a special place, films hold a special place to you, Alex, but for me as well, because I had just moved to Portland. Uh, I had a bad experience with the roommate and then moved into my first apartment and I had Netflix. 
for the very first time. And I think the first thing I ordered on uh, the DVD to mail to my house to watch was Psycho 2 because I never nice. watched it. And I watched through, you know, uh, Psycho 2, 3, and, and 4, kind of did the sequel cast thing before the sequel cast, I suppose. So, yeah, I kind of um, uh, associated it with growing up a bit, I guess. Um, uh, Rashford, when was the first time you saw Psycho 2? Was it for the show? or No, uh, I, oh. I saw this before I had ever seen Psycho. And in fact, before I really understood what Psycho and its legacy was, this... Uh, this came on as like a Sunday afternoon movie uh, back in my hometown over, over, you know, it was from a local station uh, and it was just on. And I was just in, and now we return to psycho two. I think I came in like it huh. in like the first 10 minutes. And I just remembered like, Oh, I've heard that name before. If it's a movie, it must be good. Cause I was pretty young at the time. And uh, <laughs> I, I watched it not picking, like not knowing at all. That it had a that it had such a strong connection to a, a an unassailable classic. Oh, and, and did you find it scary, sexy? Uh, what do you thought? What a little thrasher think? It's. I'm not sure. I am not 100 percent sure. I made it to the end. I I do remember it being like being suspenseful. I remember like multiple occasions, just like getting really nervous. Oh no, what's gonna happen? Mm. Uh, okay, so Alex, what about you? You said that these movies mean a lot to you. Did you see Psycho 2 pretty early on, or was it a while yeah. after you saw the first one? It was pretty early on. Um, okay. I've done on the previous episode that we, you know, Psycho is a pretty big film growing up. Um, Hitchcock was a pretty big guy. So we were like, I was aware of Hitchcock's legacy and aware of like the significance of the first film. And also I was very much aware of horror films too at, at this age, you know, it was an early fascination with me. So the very idea that, you know, psychos had Roman numerals next to them was like, holy shit, they actually did it. Um, so yeah, I think, um, I would say like within a year or so of watching the first one, um, we had somehow managed to rent Psycho 2 and, um, you know, watched it, thought it was like the coolest thing ever, you know, and of course you're young, it's in color, there's more blood, a little bit of nudity. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, we were like, oh, that was fucking awesome. So then years later, um, I think, uh, like, my aunt or something brought, like, this big old box of, like, old VHS tapes and stuff. So I'm rummaging through it. I'm like, oh, Psycho 2, all right. So I held on to it, and I was like, all right, so let's do this. Like, I remember liking it. You know, you're, you need to watch it and make sure, like, it, it was this good or was this just good because I was, you know, 10 or whatever. And watching it, I was like, I kind of fucking like this movie. Like, it's not perfect, and, you know, it's very much a sequel and everything. And in horror sequels, you always have a kind of a reductive light cast towards them. Um, no, and so throughout my life, I've always revisited Psycho 2 quite playfully and always quite enjoyed it. And over the past couple of years, I've actually I kind of looked into a lot more and dug into it and actually coming out with the um, coming out of the equation that, like, this is a solid flick. Um, that's pretty goddamn well made, really well acted, and... Um, yeah, Psycho 2, man. Fucking, that's right. a cool film. And, oh, and the director, Richard Franklin, was Australian. Um, I and have a seen... a Hitchcock fan. Big Hitchcock fan, right? I had seen one of his movies before, which is FX2, starring Brian mm -hmm. Brown. Uh, we should do the FX series on the sequel cast. That'd be a that good one. Uh, and, um, but before Psycho 2, he did, uh, in 81, he did Road Games, which looks like kind of a slasher movie with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Stacey Keach. And the poster says... The truck driver plays games. The hitchhiker plays games, and the killer is playing the deadliest game of all. Yeah, I've heard it's really good too. Mm. Yeah, it looks pretty solid. Um, you, could, 
What do you think about Richard Franklin Thrasher? Have you seen any of his films? You're looking at his uh, filmography. You know, let me let me jump into that filmography. He, uh, a Cloak and Dagger, I've heard, is a pretty neat film. I've never, I've, I've heard, it's like video game related, but I've never seen it. Oh, and Patrick is supposed to be good too, and I think there was more than one Patrick. Um, it's about like a comatose person with telekinetic powers. Thrasher. All right, so. You you know how I I often go off the beaten path on this show. Mm-hmm. I have seen one of his. I own one of his films. Uh, I have a first edition DVD of his second feature, the nineteen seventy six release, Phantasm. Oh, which was a John. It, it was a, among other things a John Holmes movie. This movie was made in an it's attempt a porno. I see. to sort of well, it was meant to bridge the cinematic gap between exploitation and pornography and like outright artful cinema. Like it's all these very artfully produced erotic vignettes that show quite a bit, but never go to like full on penetration. But it's hosted by this weird like guy doing a, uh, an Austrian accent playing a. a a psychiatrist called not a Freud who <laughs> is like explaining, like trying to try to give you a richer understanding of human sexuality. It's, it's a, it's a bizarre, but fascinating film. He, he did kind of a, a sexy film before that for his debut called the true story of Eskimo Nell. It's also known as Dick down under, which is a much funnier title, <laughs> but um, let's, now I won't be able to get Dick down under under oh, my head. That's okay, genius. Okay, so that film had characters such as Dead-Eyed Dick and Mexico Pete. Wow. I would expect nothing less. Uh, but we should really talk about Psycho 2 because it's not a piece of yeah. shit. Um, <laughs> hey, now! <laughs> that's our uh, it's don't, judge those, don't judge those erotic thrillers until you've seen them. It, that's hey, that's absolutely fair. Yep. Um, Psycho 2, I mean, so... Part of of the making of I did some research. I reread the Robert Block novel Psycho Two. Universal is so disgusted by the novel that they wanted to like shit can. They wanted to keep it from being published, um, and, and they just went with their own story. But the novel barely has uh, Norman Bates in it, and it's more of like a Hollywood satire of how much Hollywood sucks. Uh, <laughs> and they're making a movie based on the what happened in the first uh, book. It's kind of like. Kind of like Scream, yeah. but not with teenagers. More like the player, I guess. That's like it's, fascinating. Yeah, that yeah, it's it's, it's, it's pretty right witty. It, it it's worth a, a read. Well, um, the, another interesting thing about the book, and hey, spoilers if you're looking to read this book, right. is that you know you mentioned Norman Bates is barely in it. Turns out that's very very true because no, Norman Bates escapes from a mental institution. We find out at the end of the novel that Norman Bates died during his escape attempt, and that the killing, the murders have been are being performed by his court-appointed therapist who ah. is an advisor on the film and who is trying to keep the Norman Bates legacy alive. So he's trying, he's committing murders and leaving evidence to suggest that Norman is still out there killing. Ooh, clever, yeah, clever. yeah, the author, Robert Block's a very interesting dude. I was reading part of his memoir called Around the Block, a uh -huh. an unauthorized biography or something is what he, like, it's it's very funny, but interesting he wrote he some did, star trek too uh yes and he i mean he oh god he he did all kinds of things he wrote a book that then became a hag exploitation film directed by oh i just saw this in the movie feud um uh who was the guy that did all the gimmicks oh william castle yeah yeah uh, william castle um 
Anyhow, Psycho 2, I mean, yeah, so I mean, that, that's kind of the credentials we have here. And, and the script is so strong. Uh, Anthony Perkins signed on. Originally, this was going to be made for TV, and they're considering people like Willem Dafoe to play Norman Bates, who I think actually could have uh, done a pretty good job. Yeah, but, no, I'm a I'm big Willem, Willem fan over here. Um, yeah, there was, a, uh, there was a lot of, I think I mentioned this in the unrecorded um, last attempt for this episode. Yeah, mm-hmm. the one of the things was that... Um, Anthony Perkins was on SNL and they kind of did like a psycho riff. And I guess Dan oh. Aykroyd was like, Oh man, you were so great. Like, Oh, it would be so awesome to see you reprise the Norman Bates character. <laughs> and I think that was like a little bit of the impetus to get, um, Perkins cool. back on board. Yeah. Um, oh, another inter- interesting mm-hmm. bit. So they, they had to, uh, they had, they had to rebuild the Bates house, yep. uh, on the universal lot for this movie. Uh, and first, it's a very faithful recreation. Oh, uh, yes. like if I didn't know movie trivia, I probably like it wouldn't occur to me that this is a new building. But the other thing about it is that that building is still there. It was used in the other Psycho sequels, uh, and it's it's part of the Universal Studio lot tour. And uh, sort of to add on to that, the the fourth Psycho movie was filmed in uh, Orlando, Florida, and they used the version of the Psycho house they rebuilt for Universal Studios Orlando. That's funny. <laughs> um, but there you go. Um, but, I mean, yeah, with the Psycho 2, he has been in the institution for 20-something years. Uh, I think I mentioned this last time, but there's, like, a spinoff book that came out recently called, like, Psycho Asylum or something like that. That's mm-hmm. that's okay. But yeah. um, this one, you know, it, it has Norman Bates. He is cured of the insanity, and, uh, and, and that they got Vera Miles back to play the sister, Leela, is... Yeah, it is really smart. And mm-hmm. I mean, these people really bring the acting here in which you wouldn't oh, think they would for a horror sequel in the 80s. You think they'd yeah. kind of slack off, but they they just nail it. Right. And that's what I was saying. It's like this, these all, you know, like Dr. Bill Raymond's doctor played by uh, Robert Loggia, Dennis Franz. Um, uh, I, think, like, I think one uh, of the cops is the same from the first or the sheriff or something. The sheriff, he's the sheriff in the third. One. I'm not sure. He, I think he might have been in the first. But yeah, Hugh Gillen is the sheriff. Um he's terrific too like again you could have just gotten you know some whoever and you know we have a lot of strong players in this film not to mention obviously perkins and Vera miles and meg tilly and the part for mary was a very sought after part like meg ryan read for it kathleen turner read for it um turner would have been great jeez yeah but um yeah franklin and and screenwriter tom holland just you know they they believed in meg tilly and she really um she was great, but uh, Anthony Perkins did not like her. Um, he actually tried to get her bumped off the film uh, more than a few times, and he really wouldn't believe it watching this because they mm-hmm. have really good chemistry. Yeah. Um, th- what do you think about Meg Tilly in this? Because now she's like retired and is a novelist, and Jennifer Tilly, her sister, uh, does. Um, I mean, she does Chucky more than camps. She does camps. She does more than camp stuff, but yeah, I associate her with the Chucky sequels and Bound, of course, by the Wachowskis. I, so, I think yeah. she she is great in this film. There, there's some wonderful vulnerability to her performance, uh-huh. and her, her performance only gets deeper when it's revealed what she's been doing in this film. Which I don't. Do you want to discuss this linearly, or can we jump around a bit? I think we can jump around a bit, but let's just say I do like, appreciate in the beginning how it does a slow burn with Norman getting back to the hotel. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah, that really helps with the payoff when the. The screws start to get loose, and I mean, the whole movie plays with the concept of the unreliable narrator because Norman sees things and notes that other people don't. 
And funny bit of trivia, when he comes back to the house and, you know, he has that kind of flashback with uh, poisoning his mother and everything, and you see the reflection of young Norman in the in the doorknob. So that's yeah. Oz Perkins, um, Anthony Perkins' son. Oh, oh that's playing, really uh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Is he an actor, too, or what does he that. do? Um, Oz Perkins, he's got some uh, credentials, like Legally Blonde, the Star Trek oh. movie. How about that? Uh, okay. So, yeah, he's done. He's He's got around. Yeah, neat. Uh, so you were going to say Thrasher, you wanted to jump around? Well, yeah, well, there, there's okay. two, two, two things that, that sure. uh, the Spoilers, one thing that I, these I are the noticed, big, like, plot twists, but, yeah. Because, yeah. like, when yeah. Norman, you know, we, we find out that, you know, that there have been a, there's a, been a court-appointed caretaker of both the Bates house and the Bates motel, and it's still been, you know, running as, as, a, as a business, um, while Norman's been gone, but Norman gets a job at a diner, and one thing I've noticed is that, like, virtually everybody from Norman's town is, is really accepting of having him back. And and I'm yeah. always, and I'm trying to sort of place it. Does everyone there just sort of believe in the system and they truly believe that Norman has been rehabilitated mm. or is it one of those like close knit, small town things? Like everybody remembers him as Mrs. Bates, little boy. Nobody yeah. really thinks of him as the notorious serial killer. I I'm buying it as the small knit community thing. And it really kind of supports this like thesis I've put together on this movie that I really feel like um, Psycho 2 is almost like the anti-slasher slasher. Like it embraces yeah. some of the tropes of the film. But if you think about it, your main character, your main, you know, there you don't really know who. Well, you know, the, the, the main character and the main bad, I guess, isn't a bad guy. The whole movie, he's trying to be good and trying to maintain his sanity. And you have these outside forces trying to manipulate him. And there's like all this, like it's almost like a reverse gaslighting scenario. Um, well, the, until it turns into a gaslighting scenario, yeah, exactly. Because yeah, the, right. The big reveal, all the weird things that have been happening to Norman, getting you know, getting trapped in rooms, getting mysterious phone calls from his from his mother. At least some of them. Uh, it all turns out so. Lila Loomis is, of course, back in this film. You know, she's at his, she's at the hearing where Norman is released. She's, she's the one who insists that Norman needs to be put away and never let out. Uh, you know, you know, being the the sister of one of his of his victims. Uh, well, you come to find out, uh, Lila Loomis is Mary's mother. Mary being, you know, Norman's coworker at the diner, but eventually his his friend and tenant at at, at, the, at his house. And it turns out she has been trying to, they have been conspiring to push Norman over the edge with prank calls and by dressing up as his mother and by playing yeah. these gaslighting psychological games to make him snap so that he'll get recommitted. And what I absolutely love is that Mary, due to her sort of prolonged connection with with Norman, realizes that he is reformed and he is he has become a decent person and turns turns against her own mother uh, for for the sake of Norman. Which is so fascinating, too. And what I love is that, like, you know, it would be obvious that, like, you know, you have the main the main killer is, you know, like you said, rehabilitated, reformed, and he isn't the bad guy. And it's not that obvious, like, oh, he's back and at it again. And he's not. And that's what I think is so fascinating. You have this kind of, like, you know, gaslighting, manipulator, manipulative, um, you know, angle going on with the uh, surviving family of the main victim from the first uh, film. And like you said, everyone's rooting for him. Like even the, the sheriff, he's like, I'll check up on him. But, you know, you got to leave Norman alone. Um, he got his doctor is very supportive. Everyone in the town is actually very supportive. And like I was saying with the inversion of the slasher film, um, you know, he's not a voyeur. He's not a creeper. He's not, you know, he's like a very unimposing, unthreatening dude. 
and he's very much concerned for his own uh, psychological well-being. And before we really get any physical violence, we get more emotional and psychological violence with mm. the flashbacks and stuff of when he comes back to his house and with the with the notes and everything. Sure, and I, I'd I like wanted... to. Oops, excuse me. I'd like. Can I jump in for a second? Oh, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I did kind of snoop around, and there there is some documentary called The Psycho Legacy that looks really good, and I was finding clips on YouTube, and there's one vintage clip of Anthony Perkins speaking at a looks like a comic book convention or something. And it, I've never seen him like talk in an interview, but he's like a very funny guy. And, oh, yeah. and, he, and, and he talks about with Psycho 2, the audition scene they used for the, the lead part um, played here by Meg Tilly is what I think is one of the best scenes in the movie where they're having cheese sandwiches and milk. It's kind of a, a spin on what's in the original. And she wants him to like use the knife to cut the uh, sandwich. And and the line is something along the lines of, uh, I better think you take it. And as he's doing it, he's performing as Norman for the first time in God knows how many years, doing it against uh, the final actors like Meg Tilly and whoever else they had. And as he said it, he started to stutter. And the director liked it so much, he said, you're going to do that in the film. And that stutter, what an acting choice. That's all the difference where he yeah. says, like, I think you better c- c- cut it. He's so good. And... Mm. Um... It was subtle it was really, too. It's not like yeah, yeah. I mean, if you just see like the looks that he gives, like when he's painting the motel and he kind of nervously peeks behind him because he's afraid he's going to see like mother in the window or something like that. Yeah, and sure. um, I, one last thing, I guess, on the last thing I was talking about um, is that when he comes back and you have Dennis Franz, Mister Toomey, running the motel, such and a piece it's of kind shit. Of, <laughs> oh, oh, I yeah. know. It's like who else could play this better? You know what I mean? Like it's That's a perfect great. casting. I run the kind of hotel that makes money. Yeah, exactly. Like, fucking in your kid. mom's basement. Oh, <laughs> I like screwing a psycho. Um, but yeah, what I love though is that it's a it's a it's a little frustrating because you actually see the motels doing business for a change. <laughs> right. um, but also the guys, little, yeah, well, but the guys. Sorry. The interesting turn because Norman, when he's not murdering people, you know, he's su- he's such this sort of wholesome down home guy. The reveal when he discovers the re- like the hotel is in awful shape, but it's profitable, you know. And and we saw in the first film that it barely makes any money. And oh, the, yeah. the reason it's profitable is that uh, is that Dennis Franz is is letting uh, junkies uh, and sex workers crash there for like hours at a time to do to you know to do what they do. And that just Norman will have none of that. He wants to run mm-hmm. a classy, wholesome establishment. And I feel like that also like parallels with uh, some of the films like uh, more contextual themes and that like in Killing Toomey, you're killing that like oversexed, overzealous, um, overindulgent um, atmosphere that the slasher films had created following John Carpenter's Halloween, yes. which in itself is yeah. very much inspired by Alfred Hitchcock and Psycho. So well, it's like it a also, rejection I'm... of that in well, Killing well, Toomey. Sorry. To tie that into the to the gaslighting, because Norman, you know, he Norman fires uh, Warren Toomey because now that you know he's he's been he's sane and released, you know, he he has the power to do that. Then you know Toomey starts harassing him, but Norman doesn't kill Toomey. Uh, Lila kills Toomey, and mm-hmm. I think that's why like Toomey is just enough of a scumbag. I think that's how Lila justifies murdering him to make Norman look guilty. It's that moral qualifier thing where it's like, okay, whether it's Norman, Lila, or whoever, it, we don't, we're not going to miss him. You know, he's a total scumbag, so you know, fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> he, um, it's cool that he's also working in the in the diner too. I mean, it's it's not 
They do a few little set pieces there, but it's a good bit of business to give him a job where he has a knife. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, he, and he's cutting things. In it's the, like, the, the, you wonder how much you must be tempted. Right. And, like, the legality parts of the film seem very convincing. Like you said, he's working at a diner, uh, not just a motel. Like, he's got a work release sure. thing. He's got to yes, check in with yes. doctor. Yeah, um, sure. You know, like, even when people, like, file complaints against him, you know, like, it's all very, it seems, it all, like, really does follow the letter of the law. It's not like a lot of horror films from this period where people are just running around outside of law and order, you know. It's, um, it is really fascinating. And just as a restaurant person, I always get a kick out of seeing uh, fake restaurant stuff in action. And, so, I mean, uh, let's, let's use a little bit of that then. Did this seem like a convincing restaurant, all things considered? For a movie um, restaurant, pretty, for the time and for what it is, for like a, a short order type diner and before computers and everything, we had handwritten tickets and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was fairly convincing, and you I'll tell second that through it together. But yeah, no, I, I bought it. Well, the other thing about about a, a diner, I just want to point out, so much of what is go in the kitchen of a diner can kill you or cause yes. grievous bodily harm. The, oh, I'm yeah. thinking of the grease traps. The, oh yeah. Yeah, kitchens are just, you know, freaking... I'm surprised I haven't seen right. more injuries than I have over well, the years. But The worst one I saw uh, is I, I worked at a steakhouse, and some of the employees would get high before working, which happens actually a lot in the restaurant industry, oh, from yeah. what I understand. So but the one girl was doing the fry station, where you put the, fr- the... We did fresh potatoes, actually, but you put the potatoes in, put them in there for, I don't know, eight minutes, seven minutes, Take them out, shake the grease. When you shake the excess grease off, you do it over the fryer, and then you mm-hmm. dump it in the bowl, put the spices, and then you know serve it. But this girl, she when she picks up, uh, and she wasn't new; she'd been there like a month. She picks up the fries, and her mind kind of blanks. And instead of shaking off the grease, she just turns immediately to her right, and looks uh-huh. really confused. The hot grease drips on this young dude's arm. Uh-huh. And they had this cool kind of magic uh, first aid stuff, like this spray, almost looked yeah. like uh, that that helped heal it up. And and they didn't fire the girl, which surprised me. I think they should That's have. But shocking, yeah. If she was, it's, it's, just high, yeah. Right. It's it's the South. I'll just put it that way. Like they tend to, right. they just wanted to. They just said, "Well, along. bless her heart," and they just let it go with that. <laughs> Thrasher. That's not that. Yeah, I mean, you're actually right. I mean, you worked in restaurants too, Thrasher. But do oh, you have any? Do you have any hellish injury stories or um amazingly enough, no, neither I nor the handful of people I worked with ever uh, got seriously injured, although uh, there was this so there was this big machine that would mix the pizza dough. You would just sort of throw in a bunch of stuff and it would mix it up into just one giant blob of dough that could last a whole day. Um, huh. so the uh, something someone who wasn't me was making the dough and ended up like leaving like a measuring cup and a pair of tongs in it. Jesus. While it was running. So (laughs) we we thought it had broken Mm. the machine. It hadn't. It had just blown a fuse, but there's all this mangled metal in there in the dough. And so we had to like run two other batches of dough through the machine to basically pick up any other stray bits of metal that may have been Ugh. stuck in there. Holy shit. I'm yeah. surprised that didn't break the machine. That's 
Oh, no, we're fortunate it didn't, but like, thankfully, a circuit breaker mm -hmm. got tripped. Uh, th that was the one, yeah, it was on, it was on, it's, it's such a big, big, clunky machine. It had its own circuit breaker in the building. So, nice. thankfully, like, I just had to, I had, oh, I had to climb through basically duct work to get the <laughs> master fuse box. I, I can believe it. And Alex, I think you by, by far the most restaurant experience out of all of us. Do you have a favorite horror story before we go back to the horror film? I can, I, do a, I, I can do a quickie. I actually wasn't yeah, here yeah. for this one. But um, so one night uh, a friend of mine was working at this place and uh, at the end of the night, they, you know, shut all down all the equipment. They're doing a deep clean. And part of that was that you had to get up and, and you know, polish the, the hood vents and everything, get all the grease and grime and shit out of there. So this one kid... Um, shortly after the fryer later has been shut off, put sheet trays on top of them. You do that sometimes just to keep detritus and shit from falling in there. And so what he did is that he made the genius decision to um, jump up on the line and start wiping down the hood. So he stuck his foot oh. in the on the sheet tray on top of the fryer later. Jesus it would Christ. Hold him. Fucking sheet tray slips, leg goes in the fryer, Oof. and before the, the hospital's there, I, I'm not hospital, the ambulance is there. They are. They're, they're, mm. The acrylic fucking chef pants mm. off of his ankle. So yeah. that's, I think, I, one I of bet. the most horrific ones I've had the uh, uh, displeasure of knowing. <laughs> so there, there's a diner scene that I, I found particularly effective that yeah. I would like to talk about. Sure. Um, it, it, particularly because it, it perfectly harkened back to so much of the suspense filmmaking of Hitchcock where, you know, mm. they've got that little rotating thing where you clip the order to it and it like rotates around. And when some orders get clipped to it, we see one of the orders is this note in jagged handwriting that says, you know, like this is, this is after Mary has, has become Norman's tenant. Like the clip, the, yeah. the note just says like, you know, you, you will kick that little whore out of our house. And, and, as and we just get these like quick cuts of Norman trying to fill orders and cook stuff as fast as he can, and that the wheel just slowly turns and slowly yeah, turns yeah, until like good. it finally gets to him. And when Norman finally pulls that note, supposedly written in his mother's handwriting from it, it has now been built up. A spring has been wound tightly, and you really feel the same impact Norman feels when he finally reads it. And it's super Hitchcockian, too, because at the time, um, Meg Tilly's having kind of a face-off with Dennis Franz, and you get these, like, mm -hmm. uh, like overhead Dutch angles, and it really ratchets up the tension. It's wonderfully edited and very well-directed. Um, Richard Franklin, like I was saying earlier, is very much a, a fan or student of Hitchcock, and um, and I guess when, in preparation for the film, he had made Tom Holland, the screenwriter, they together watched every single Hitchcock film, not just like film, but like I wow. mean everything that had his name, like even like the like you know industrial films or and shit like the you know PSAs that he had directed, and um, yeah, Jesus. it really you can see it really pays off in that yeah. um, in that diner scene. It's really well directed and edited. Because Hitchcock did something like uh, fifty features or something in that neighborhood. I mean, several yeah. dozen. Yeah, yeah, that whole career in England. Yeah. yeah, with the silence. Um, that's really cool. I mean, I, I do want to point out you know you have jerry goldsmith doing the score which he's a great composer and i really like his main theme he does it's not the classic psycho neat, neat, neat scene that everyone knows but it's a really melancholy sad theme and i mean this movie does make you feel a bit for norman even though he's a mass murderer because he's getting like reverse gaslit as as um as you guys were saying 
Yeah, it's a it's a very mournful score, and it kind of just it, it emphasizes that this dude has not had a very good life. <laughs> um, you right, know, probably right. after you know years of of psychological abuse from his mother, and um, God only knows what else went on there. You know, there's a whole uh, you know there's a whole show about that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's a very sad and um, it's a very sad and mournful score, and Perkins channels it so wonderfully. And like you were saying, Matt, in the interview, um, not only does Anthony Perkins, uh, not only is he a terrific actor, but he had a real, he had a lot of personality, and it came through yeah, in his performances yeah. and interviews and stuff. Because he was one of the earlier actors to die of uh, AIDS-related complications. Oh yeah. And yeah, which is really fucking sad. Yeah. It is. Uh, leave it to me to bring down the show. But when he <laughs> died, he was only sixty. Which is hard yeah, to believe. Right. I, I mean, think of what I'm sure he would have had a lot of uh, done some great dramatic parts as well. I mean, Psycho kind of uh, the original kind of cursed him in a, in a way because he got stuck with a lot of horror films. But he also did like in, interesting work and later directed a, a few things himself, film and television. Yeah, so. I mean, I think um, it was a mixed blessing because he came to mm-hmm. really embrace the Norman character. I mean, he, he directed the next film. Um, sure after this and was really into it and I guess kind of collided with Mick Garris in four because he had a lot of input on the on the character I mean yeah we'll get there yeah totally um yeah interesting very interesting career um that uh yeah around this um and the the direction the film takes is is something I think is so fascinating because like you said you're almost kind of rooting for him throughout and then when you find out the great big twist that um that Meg is actually in cahoots with, uh, you know, Lila, Lila Crane Loomis. And then, you know, after a while you, you begin to decode it like that, you know, and they, they set it up really well. Like when, um, she finds the peephole in the restroom, and then mm. the other eye, and then you see, you know, Norman's downstairs, like it very obviously couldn't have been him unless there's a secret compartment or trapway. But at this point you don't really believe that this character is capable of doing that anymore. And it actually turns out that, it feeds into the even bigger reveal that the other woman or the other eye in that, um, in that people is actually Norman's birth mother. Yeah. It all, it all comes together. At because, the end, you know, right. Cause, cause in, in the end, uh, Mary talks Norman down, you know, Norman's still getting these phone calls from somebody claiming to be his mother. And Mary talks him down by dressing in his mother's clothes and saying, no, mother, no, Norman, I'm right here. I'm your mother. Uh, and it, when you go back through the film, you realize that, there aren't enough people for all the weird things that have happened. Like you talk about the eye, there are phone, there are phone calls Norman receives from his quote unquote mother, where we both know where Mary and Lila are. So they couldn't be the ones making the phone call. So at the end, you know, everything's wrapped up, but the movie's not ending. Um, you know, Lila's Lila's been arrested and whatnot. Um, so Norman is just kind of hanging out in his kitchen and this other woman comes in who hasn't shown shown up much in this movie, but she she works at the diner, so we have we have seen her, um, and the uh, so she comes in. And this oh crud, I'm trying to find the character's name. This is uh, Emma Emma Spool, uh, and she comes in and just starts talking to Norman uh, and you know explains well Norman, uh, you know Mrs. Bates wasn't wasn't your your mother. She was my sister. I had you out of wedlock while I was institutionalized and my sister took you in and she raised you. And so this casts so much sort of a new light on the abusive relationship between Norman and the woman who raised him. Um, And 
like you you see there's this weird sort of psychosexual tension between them but as uh emma spool is unburdening herself and and you know filling in the last of the gaps of the story and you start to realize she must be the this third person who's responsible for the odd goings on norma just casually picks up a shovel and caves in the back of her skull we're the spirit hunters and we're a show that treats hunter hunter and yu hakusho's author as the center of the universe some weeks we do linguistic analysis so the chinese meaning of this character is to smelt or refine but so the changed meaning in japanese it means to temper other times we get absolutely smashed so we take one shot every time yusuke uses the ray gun one hour later this is the least coherent episode you can find out more about the Spirit Hunters right here on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Hello, my name is Jonathan Dunn, and I'm inviting you to listen to Our Three Cents, a weekly podcast where myself and two of my very best gaming chums are counting down our top 100 favorite video games of all time. For all the episodes and information, check out our website, www.our3cents.co.uk. And that's like, well, holy shit. What a, I mean, when I first saw it, I was like, whoa. Like, oh, no, it is a pure holy shit moment. Then damn. he picks her up and carries her to put her in a chair. Like, oh, mother, I'm so glad you've come to stay with me. It's, yep. it, it's, it a, it's a funny ending, but for me, that's one twist too many. It bothers me every time I see this movie. I don't know if that's really necessary. It takes away from some of the power of, of the um, Meg Tilly stuff and everything that came before. It probably is one twist too many, and yet the impact of that murder with the shovel sure, sure. is so great. I yeah. can't imagine this movie without it. It might be it might be one twist too many, but what I think um, makes it such a good payoff is not just the initial shock, but this whole time, um, you know, Vera Miles has been gassing him up so much, so much, so much, and it doesn't work until they're dead and can't benefit from it from it at all. And then when his real mother comes in, boom, like a light switch goes, like they just broke him right after it was worth it for them to, for him to break. You know what I mean? It's like, that was the revelation that puts him over the edge. Yeah. They finally turn him, but to to none of their benefit at all. And then when his mother comes in, you know, flack with a shovel. And now it's like, it's almost like he's punching his card for like a, you know, like for a second, a second life. You know what I mean? Like he's like, I have a new mother. Um, everyone is super sympathetic for me now, especially, um, that I was, you know, tortured by these, uh, people for, for so long. So it's a, it's perversely funny. And I think it really kind of ties together the, the whole, like, uh, like Scooby-Doo or Machiavelli and revenge plot <laughs> hatched by, um, <laughs> by, uh, Lila Loomis. And, um, it's a, it's a shock ending, but I think it ties into the rest of it in a really perverse and, uh, gleefully macabre way. There, there's a really good quote from um, film critic and author Kim Newman, who says, uh, the wittiest dark joke in Psycho 2 is that the entire world wants Norman to be mad, and normality can only be restored if he's got a mummified mother in the window and is ready to kill again. <laughs> See, I wish I could write that good, but like that's, that's exactly right. Write that well, Matt. Write that well. <laughs> See, that's why. We write good things. Um, <laughs> we like... We like Psycho too much. Good. Um, <laughs> it's, it's the goodiest movie. This is the Caveman podcast. <laughs> but yeah, this. Um, you know, we I could know. do that. Like when we did the two Jakes all doing Jack Nicholson impressions, we could do Please, a movie no. and just agree that we'll all do it in Caveman voices. Uh, yeah. No. Uh, uh, okay. Bonus episode.
on on that note, you know, I, I would give Psycho Two a sequel. Yes, I think it's it's well written. It's um, not my favorite of the sequels, but it 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 lifts more weight than you you think it would. And uh, Anthony Perkins and Meg Tilly in particular just just really uh, uh, sell the the script and then just have really grounded performances. Yeah, I'm definitely give it a sequel. Yes, as well. I had a I had a great time watching this, and this is a it all comes full circle in this film. So you could leave it at these two films, and you would have a great duology. But damned if I don't want to see what happens in Norman's community as he finishes settling in and and gets into his own routine. Oh, and uh, also uh, I did look it up. Uh, Robert Block did two movies directed by William Castle. The first was The Nightwalker, and the second was Straightjacket. I know about Straightjacket. Yeah, I haven't seen Nightwalker, though. I think Straightjacket was the one I was thinking about. Good catch. Um, and Alex? Uh, definite sequel, yes. I I love this movie. Um, it's It's funny because it's one of those movies that, you know, like, on paper it shouldn't be good, and then you get the right amount of talent, and you get the you get the right cast, and it all kind of just comes together, and I mean, what a what a freaking stunt! Twenty two years after the hollowed mm-hmm. ground that w- that is Psycho by Alfred Hitchcock, no less. You know, this wasn't just like you know a journeyman filmmaker. This is Alfred freaking Hitchcock, and then you get an Aussie dude who just happens to love the material, and you get some of the original cast back, and I mean, bam, it all comes together. So yeah, definite sequel. Yes, I I love the film, and I love. The, the older I get, the more I read into it, and just how it's a revisionist slasher film in so many ways. I really like that it plays on a lot of the a lot of the tropes and um, uh, I guess um, genre trappings that exist within it, and um, kind of flips it on its head. And it goes in a lot of different directions, and it definitely plays against type in so many ways that I think just works wonderfully. Right. I really wish I had the Scream Factory a while ago released a collector's editions of psycho two and three and um i really wish i had those because scream factory does a great job with their commentaries and special features and pick up the slack when uh, a lot of studios anymore just do really vanilla releases yeah we have the um we have the uk arrow release of this and um it's packed to the gills with cool cool shit. cool yeah neat um so there you go yeah that's what we thought of psycho two uh next week we'll be doing psycho three but we're going to move on to a segment uh, pitch a sequel and I guess I'll begin, even though I haven't thought of one yet. So with the way this ends, it shows uh, Norman Bates is back to his old tricks. And I, mine would be called um, Psycho 2099. So <laughs> Norman Bates, is uh, he goes to, to take a nap. There, there's some like tornado or earthquake. There's some like freak accident or like the, the psycho house crashes on him and preserves his body until the year 2099. I'm imagining and, the Buck Rogers intro from the sure. 80s yeah. with Norman Bates. <laughs> bitty, bitty, bitty. Uh, yeah. So the, the robots and stuff. But his, his body is is restored. He, he, or he wakes up. You know, his body is somehow intact. The And he sees his... Um, yeah, this is what it'll... Yeah, yeah that's the ticket. Uh, his 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 motel has been changed into a uh, a futuristic like strip club. <laughs> it's kind of like his worst nightmare, and so it's him trying to get control of it. And also, you you would have like um, 
oh, kind of like Woody Allen in Sleeper, kind of like futuristic, like sex jokes and things <laughs> mixed with a slasher psycho 2099 and it would say uh he's out of time and out of his mind <laughs> that, that i'm sh- i we got to see if that tagline has been used that tagline should have been used on something I, you know I, you I'd you have almost recreated the uh duology of stories from dangerous visions a toy for juliet by robert block and the prowler in the city at the edge of the world by harlan ellison I have not read either of those stories, but that's the, a the short version is yeah, just that say, own it. Jack the Ripper ends up in the future in an amusement park sort of nice. place. Locke did a lot of Jack the Ripper stories. Oh, uh, he was obsessed. His one of his Star Trek mm-hmm. episodes is about Jack the Ripper. Oh, is it? That's funny. Yeah, uh, it's like cool. it, it turns out Jack the Ripper was motivated by this like psychic alien organism that hopped <laughs> bodies and had been several of the galaxy's most notorious serial killers and mythological beasts. So he was oh, ripping off Jason uh, Goes uh, to Hell, I see. With a time machine, yes. <laughs> okay, Thrasher. <laughs> All right, I want to do, I wanna do uh, something a bit, <laughs> a bit different. So uh, in mine, you know, Norman has fixed up the hotel, and it turns out the hotel is super popular. Uh, and it never occurs to Norman why that might be. Well, it turns out the reason why the hotel is super popular is that the Norman Bates serial killer legend has grown thanks to a novel about the, a true crime novel written by uh, Robert Block, who will have a cameo in the film. And also because of a TV, a successful TV movie based on the true events. Uh, So the psycho movie does exist. And so all the people who are visiting the, staying at the hotel, they're, they're thrill seekers who want to meet a real life serial killer and stay the night in real life crime scenes. And a lot of them get pretty fetishistic about it. And will sometimes like take like nude photos, recreating mm. the shower scene and whatnot. And right. like at first, Norman's delighted because everyone is so friendly, and you know he's doing so much business, and like he's he's he has money for the first time. He can buy a new car. He can fix up the family house. Although when he gets the house fixed up, he has to make sure to hide the body of 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 Emma. You know, so so there's there's some farcical elements where he's always moving moving her body around to make sure the contractors never find it. Um, but then he finds out all the what, why the guests are really there, and that sends him over the edge. And so he starts he starts killing he starts killing guests, which only make the reputation greater and brings in more tourists. And like he's almost it's almost like the producers. He's a victim of his own success. Uh, and in the end, gets so flustered running this hotel. It's almost a farcical ending where he commits himself due to stress and exhaustion because he can't stand dealing with all these super fans. <laughs> Got it. Uh, and Alex. So um, shortly after um, getting his new mother and uh, settling back down, um, we have another uh, family member of one of Norman's victims come pay a visit to the Bates Motel, and is none other than um, is none other than uh, Matilda uh, Arbogast, the, the the daughter of Martin Balsam's character from the first film. Hmm. Um, the detective, the, right? Yeah, the, the private yeah. eye. So it turns out that she's actually a uh, gypsy uh, fortune teller uh, slash shaman. Romani, and, and uh, that's a stereotype. Okay. Romani gypsy. <laughs> um, 
turns out she's got some she can do some magic shit so what she does is that um in a, in a cool twist of irony um finds out about uh norman's taxidermy hobbies so she uh casts a spell that makes uh the animals uh that, that he's uh taxidermy come come back to life and um seek their revenge and um since many of them are birds there's a lot of bird attacks and uh and and norman's uh helpless to um helpless to you know uh, you know, defend himself. So what he does is that he, um, what he does is that he takes the head off of his uh, mother and sticks it on his own and tries to, to, to distract them. And it turns out the birds think that uh, it's like um, that uh, the, the 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 woman the 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 lady's head on Norman's body is a is a god. So they all worship him, and he becomes like the lord of the bird people, um, in a weird, cruel, ironic uh, future world that we uh, would. Uh, we we should fear, um, and it would be called uh, Psycho Three: The Birds Two. <laughs> there you go. I mean, talk about a crossover. Uh, and they actually made a Birds Two that was a TV movie. So I mean, that could be something we could consider for oh, a future yeah. sequel yeah. cast. Kind of like how they did, like, look what happened to Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> really? They did. I, I yeah, didn't know that. Yeah, I think Ruth Gordon's the only one that came back. Funny. Uh, all right, on to. Sorry, we're a bit rusty, listeners. It's been a little bit because uh, of my internet issues. I went and killed a bunch of internet gremlins over the weekend, and my blender is a mess. What you so, do is so, you spray him with water, and then you release an electricity internet gremlin, and he melts them all. You see that they're doing what? a gremlins cartoon that's like a prequel about yes, how the yes, gremlins met the uh, the shopkeep. Yeah, no way. I could, I could, I can get into that. And Joe is Dante's Joe Dante? an executive producer. Okay, He's consulting, right. I think. So I think it. It could be promising. He said it's not what people think it is. So okay, I, I try, but I, 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 I don't think I've seen a logo for it. But it, I do like Gremlins. So yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens. Um, but yeah, on, on to what you're watching. Gee, it's been so long since we've done a show that uh, recorded a new show. I'm trying to think. What did we do? We um, <laughs> someone else go first. I, I can't. Tell okay. Well, right I. Now. So I saw uh, Elvira's Haunted Hills, the Elvira sequel, but I'm not going to talk about that because maybe we want to do the Elvira duology. Then I watched a true classic, A Hard Day's Night, and I really wanted to talk about that, but then I thought, well, no, that also has a sequel, Help. So maybe we should wait and actually do those movies. And I didn't know what to talk about. And then I saw Cats. Oh, oh I have yet to see this. What did you think? Of uh, okay. Elegatos. This this is a bad movie. Uh, it <laughs> is worse than you think. It is worse in more ways than you can imagine. But it is so inexplicably bad in so many bizarre ways. I think it truly must be seen. <laughs> uh, is it? How much did you uh, did you do any um, adult libations while watching it? No, and I probably should have. I was completely sober, but I, I guess I can sum it up like this because my, you know, I saw it with with my wife, and we were talking about it. And at one point, I just broke down and said, "It is it is easier to explain the lore of Dune than to explain the lore of Cats." <laughs> I oh, I thought you were joking. I saw that picture no. on Facebook. No, I actually said that. Yeah, huh. and and it's Cats is based on a um. T.S. Eliot's right? book, Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, which is a book of poems that are all just about well-observed cat behavior. So there, there's no science fiction element to it at all? No, they're just these sort I of see. whimsical poems about cats with funny names and, and big personalities 
but who but it's still all based on real things cats do and and, and with cats the the lyricist is tim rice isn't it i you know i'll have to check okay uh, because the lyricist he wanted to use at first which i kind of wish he would have done instead was jim steinman who uh did music and lyrics for meatloaf's uh, bad out of hell trilogy cool and also did Total Eclipse of the Heart. Like anytime you you hear something with over the top orchestrations, and it's a ten minute song, your cat chimed in. So oh yeah. Had... Okay, here, here, here's the, the musical DNA. So it's compositions by Andrew Lloyd Webber, lyrics yeah. by T. S. Eliot, Trevor Nunn, and Richard Stilgo. I stand corrected. Okay, interesting. Yeah, Cats is one of the longest running things on Broadway. Um, uh, I've it never. Has the, it was the was it? Yeah. thing on Broadway yeah, for quite some uh... time. I presume it still is. I don't know if it got. Hmm. Yeah, I'll have to look that up. Um, I mean, it, it closed, P- but I think it was back like in a year or two. <laughs> That's funny. PBS certainly uh, had like a videotape you could get of of the '80s production of it. I've never seen it, but I have seen a million people audition with this on memory. <laughs> that cat is sorry. Memory, memory's the one like probably it's it's a song that can work outside of the uh, outside of the musical and might be better outside of the musical. I see. Um, so I mean, the movie's long, right? Does it feel it? Oh yes, yes, it does. Uh-huh. I, I I will say the the best uh, like there there is there is one bright spot that is 100% good and pure and I will not hear a word against it. Uh let me make sure I'm let me make sure I'm getting the character's name right. Here we go. Uh James Corden plays Buster for Jones, the the fat kind of sophisticated uh cat. He knows exactly what kind of movie he's in. Every choice he makes is the correct choice. He's fun. His performance feels natural. He really embodies a a sort of hungry, roly-poly cat. Uh, and I've had a few, so I know exactly what they're like. Uh, if if the movie was just him, it would be fl- it would be so good. I won't say flawless, but like what the performance he's doing is the performance everyone should be doing. It, it would, it would really yeah. it makes it makes the absurdity seem lived in and and, and whimsical and not just forced and oppressive. Funny, there, um, oh yeah, that's right, Elba's in it. Idris Elba, he is asked to do some weird things. Can he sing? <laughs> I don't know. That's that's the thing. <laughs> I can't tell you. I, can, I, okay. I can't tell you who in this movie is necessarily good at singing. Um, huh. I because even the ones who are known as vocalists still turn in weird performances and often talk th- sing things that don't need to be talk sung. This movie was infamous in in theaters. Uh, one because people and the audience were yelling so much at the screen and shrieking. Uh, laughing at it, but two, when it, I think the first week it was out, like some of the effects weren't either they weren't finished, which I don't quite believe, or maybe they weren't like composited in the final mix because you could see Judy Dench's human hand in some of the scenes, and there's just so they fixed it. But I wonder if that old cut like exists as a bootleg. I'm, uh, I'm sure it does, somewhere. It, it has it's, to it's ju- just to see the, the flubs. Well, it's funny. Oh, there's because we did we did catch one of the actresses with human hands in one of the later musical numbers. So they didn't fix all of the effects. Hmm. And apparently one of the reasons because because the CGI cat 
enhancements on the actors look very bizarre and out of place. And I found out part of the reason that that is the case is that the director did not want to have them wear those motion capture suits that have like the shapes on them. Are you so, kidding me? Really? Yeah. Yeah. He thought that that was unnatural and silly. So he <sighs> just had them act in really basic costumes. And then the animators had to animate the cat parts over them. That makes it so and, much harder. Oh yeah, it absolutely does. I'm sorry, Alex, you were saying something? Draws the line. It's like, that's what's going to look silly, you know? <laughs> Right. Um, like there's. I, I hope it's. Oh, go on. It's like really Tom Hooper. That's the deal breaker. That that's what's the, that's what's silly looking. <laughs> I like Tom Hooper's Les Mis. That's kind of a shame. Um, yeah. Right. I. So I mean, there was a very funny thing I saw on on Twitter. I think right around when the movie popped up on HBO Max or on on DVD or something, and he basically on is either on YouTube, maybe Periscope, one of those live streaming things. Andrew, a very bitchy. Uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber just kind of like live streamed his reaction to the movie, his commentary to the movie. And whenever James Corden went on screen, he started like getting really angry and saying like, this guy did so much nonsense. We try to cut as much of it, as much of it out of the picture as possible. Oh, wow. Because again, Corden is the best thing in this movie. Right. Hmm. And I thought Corden was really good in into the woods. Um, But that's neither here nor there. Cool. Um, Alex, what's the, what's the, what have you been watching? I've been watching a very bratty cat make a lot of noise. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I watched this really interesting uh, Japanese film that came out this year from, uh, I want to say, cult director Aosuke uh, Naito. Um, it's called Forgiven Children. And it's hmm. based on a true story that happened a few years ago where these uh, like junior high school kids were fooling around with like, this like homemade crossbow. <clears throat> and, um, you know, it's like, you know, taped together of like chopsticks and stuff, but, you know, they're like shooting balloons and boxes with it and what have you. And, um, you can tell there's like one of the, you know, one of like the bully kids in the group, um, they're just kind of dicking around and it misfires and shoots one of the kids in the neck and he dies. And it became this big, you know, big public scandal. And the kid who, who, you know, the kid who did it um because uh he was a juvenile and other various uh you know aspects of the case he he was let he was let free and it kind of follows the whole like media circus and that ensues and it's just like really well thought out like really interesting look at you know the legal system trauma growing pains um and from like both sides of the families and stuff like that it's a really fascinating film and yet it's like like imagine like a like a more stylish spotlight meets like a horrible true crime case such as this, mm. and it's a it's a like the you know the 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 kid who mainly did it, you know, had also been bullied prior too. So you know you kind of get this other narrative about you know like bullying and how all that works, and then the kind of flaws in the uh, Japanese judicial system. Something I don't really know that much about, but um, the film gives you a pretty good uh, context and everything. And it, it's a really, really well, interesting uh, Alex, film. one second. Can you unplug yeah. and replug your headset? Sorry about that. Sorry. Um, it's a it's a really interesting film. Um, and the director had been on my radar for a while because there's this very ridiculously titled film called um, Let's Make the Teacher Have a Miscarriage Club from 2012. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. That's quite the title. That's quite the title. And apparently that, too, is also another true 
crime case involving, you know, adolescent, pre-adolescent kids doing horrible things to people and not really understanding the consequences of it. So I guess that this is this director's kind of wheelhouse. So I'm curious to see more because a title like that just sounds like horrible schlock. And, you know, I was going to just avoid it altogether. Then I saw this and I was really taken by it. So I think I'm going to check out the most ridiculously titled Let's Make the Teacher Have a Miscarriage Club because um, I think uh, there's more to the story than we get from the from the title and the way it's packaged. Nice. Um, okay, so, I mean, the thing that I've been watching lately, it's been... Uh, well, I guess I can just talk about this. The The show is almost over, but it's The Stand. Have I talked about this yet on the show? I don't think I have. The no, new miniseries? Yeah. Okay. So uh, I'm going to look up so I get the name right of the people that worked on it. Um, the Stand is one of Stephen King's longest novels in the expanded version. It's over a thousand pages. It's the first book I read that was over a thousand pages. And uh, what we have here is a, a miniseries in the nineties. They did a miniseries and with is something okay. Did a microphone drop? Uh, yeah, no, I just had to move the cat. Sorry. Okay. No, not a problem. Move the cat's a successful screenwriting book. Um, Anyway, <laughs> terrible okay, joke. we got our next project. Uh, the Stand, uh, you know, th- this newer version of the miniseries, it's nine episodes. It's a bit longer than the old one. It's not quite over yet, but um, it's not nearly as good as the 90s one. Mm. With the exception of, I like that uh, it's for CBS All Access, which soon will be called Paramount Plus. Uh, not another streaming service name that changes fun, fun yeah. times. But it, you know, I do like that it's. R-rated, for lack of a better word, like it, it's more gritty, which the '90s miniseries couldn't do. Yeah. But they they make the baffling decision to tell the story not in chronological order, and when it's a story with so many characters, and you're you're saying that, uh, and you want to show life before the pandemic and during the pandemic, and uh, after the pandemic, it 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 just makes things overly confusing, and it seems very arbitrary how they do it. Yeah, that seems very unnecessary for something as dense as The Stand. Yeah, this was developed by Josh Boone and Benjamin Cavell. Um, some of the some of the cast, I, I think, is quite good. You have Whoopi Goldberg uh, in here as Mother Abigail. Um, James Marsden is in the, the lead role that was played by Gary Sinise in the 90s miniseries. And cool. um, I want to give a shout out to... Oh, wait, that's not the guy I'm thinking of. Damn it. There, there's an actor in here that's really, really good as a kind of... Um, Stephen King has characters like this a lot, but it's kind of like a dumb person who's really smart. Not not dumb, but like... Mm. How would you say? Well, like, like a person with a, a developmental uh, yes, disability. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this guy, in the book, he's really annoying because whenever he he repeats himself a lot and he says things like, M-O-O-N, that spells bacon. He says stuff like that over, but the actor who plays that role is really good in this miniseries. And there's so many characters in the show, I can't remember the fucking guy's name. Oh, Brad William Henke, I think. Okay. Perhaps, but he he was quite good. And uh, yeah, Tom Cullen, that's right, because he repeats his name all the time. So yeah, um, I, I... Despite all that, like if you like Stephen King, you should probably still see it just to compare it to the 90s version. But mm-hmm. 
yeah, so it, it's it's okay at the end of the day, but the the non chronological stuff just is baffling. Yeah, I was curious to see it just because um, you know, it's it's a great it's one of Stephen King's great, you know, works and sure, um, sure. the original series is interesting too. I always uh, I always enjoyed. It. I haven't seen it in a while though. Um, but just like you said, the nonlinear thing just seems so unnecessary. Um, but uh, I'm not the director, so <laughs> right. You had a lot of good directors working on this too. Yeah. Um. So, who knows? I mean, they've been trying to remake this for a while. I'm glad they finally did. And it got delayed a bit uh, when it came out because of COVID-19. Mm. Um, which, Very timely. Uh, yes, as it turns out. Um, Thrasher, do you have any thoughts on The Stand in general? Or Regrettably, no. I have not read it nor seen either version. My only real memory uh, of it is that uh, I was in high school when the TV miniseries came out. And I had a friend who for years would quote the M-O-O-N spells thing. <laughs> like just... <laughs> Like okay. you would, you would say that you you just be in the middle of a conversation and you go, oh M O O N that spells salad. <laughs> <laughs> he would just, and then he would just like smile very self satisfied. It was very, right. very strange. Did he do it when you would go to bars and restaurants when the waitress came? That'd be well, awesome. he, he would he would never tell it to like a stranger. He would just it oh, would just man. be something like among us. <laughs> You know, I don't know. And sometimes it would just be a, like a non sequitur. We'd be driving. Uh, something would be not necessarily talking. Something would be on the radio. Uh, and then you know, oh, uh, M-O-O-N. That spells aqueduct. <laughs> I don't know why he did it. He just found it endlessly amusing. I, it's okay. pretty funny, yeah. Yeah, you could um, make a good pickup line at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> M-O-N, that means give me your number. Yeah. Oh Lord. <laughs> Oof. What a right. day, fellas. Um yeah, so let's do the sequel scene. Can I be Norman this time? Oh sure. Okay, why don't you set up the what's happening? So so this is uh so this is uh when Norman and Barry have gone to Sheriff Hunt to tell him that they think someone's been stalking around uh the Bates estate. Got it. Um, who wants to, to together what's going on? Who wants to be the sheriff? Who wants to be Mary? I'll be Mary because that's fun. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll do the sheriff. You want to do the narrator too, Thrasher? The parenthetical. Oh yeah, I can do the narration. Okay, great. Um, all right, so ready? Here we go. Are you sure neither one of you heard anything between four to five this afternoon? No, I was. He was with me all afternoon, but we were walking in the fields behind the house around that time. Okay. Well, nice to see you again, Norman. The sheriff and his deputy walk out. Mary closes the front door and watches them walk away. Why did you do that? Do you what? Why to the sheriff? You weren't with me all afternoon. I had to do something. He was going to arrest you. Thrasher? Norman suddenly holds his head in pain and slumps down to a nearby chair. Norman, what's wrong? It's starting again. Yeah. So if, if I may say something about, about your, your performance of Mary, all of your sentences started like you were Robin <laughs> Bird, but then ended like you were Little Gideon from Gravity Falls. It's very, I don't know either of those references, but... I'm sure the audience does. I was one playing, of them will be. I, I played her like a you. southern belle with a lisp. 
One of those yeah. references will delight you, uh, but I wonder which. Oh, so you said Southern with the lisp, so you mean like yeah. Drew Barrymore and Home Fries? Like, well, I never. <laughs> it's ever so cold out here, but it's ever so warm at the same time. It's fried but, green tomatoes. The secret's in the sauce. The secret's I, in the sauce. I do declare I shall have a lunch at Mr. Bingley's gazebo. Well, golly. <laughs> the, the, the last time I went to the diner by the Psycho Hotel Motel, I, I went and had a cheese sandwich, hold the cheese. I didn't have a lot of bread. <laughs> Don't listen to him, Norman. You're not a psycho. Not <laughs> anymore, anyhow. That's now, enough I, say, I say I am the very model of a modern major general. That's, that's oh, the Al Pacino part. Uh, <laughs> I'm the very modern. Hey, Don't you remember that? Norman, you gotta get a grip <laughs> on yourself. Norman, your mother's dead, Norman. <laughs> that's not bad. Yeah. Pacino <laughs> and like bad drag. <laughs> did you ever see uh, Mad TV did a sketch with Pacino and De Niro going to an ice cream shop? <laughs> Caliendo was one of them. I can't remember who was the other one. Oh my goodness! But it it's really good. I want some Rocky Road with all the marshmallows in it. Like it's, I know it, <laughs> the two guys. The imitations are just perfect. But there's a bit where he just like lists the names of different <laughs> creams. Yes, in character, yeah. and it's great. And then he just goes, "Wow, so many choices. This is gonna take a while." <laughs> Freightlings at cream, <laughs> yummy, yummy bubble gum. <laughs> R as in Robert Loja. O as in Oh my God, it's Robert Loja. Well, and recall Robert uh, Robert Loja was in uh, one of the Crow movies, right? Oh, as, <laughs> as the police chief, wasn't he? As maybe not. No, I don't he think Robert in... Loja was ever. Okay, in... maybe I wish Robert Loja was in uh, the Crow. Uh, <laughs> The the prison crow, whatever that was called. <laughs> oh, the crow, the crow. Uh, speaking oh, of crowing, we've been crowing on far too long, so we should wrap this up. Yeah. Uh, uh, for sec- uh, you can buy my books at um, matwbt.com has the links. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at matwbt.com and follow the show uh, on Twitter and Facebook. Just look up SequelCast2. Uh, you want to want to check me out? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Uh, if you want to uh, support my work, you know, hop on to DriveThroughRPG.com. You can purchase uh, a lot of the books I've worked on in PDF or print on demand uh, there. Uh, and if you, uh, I would, I would, if you really want to support me, uh, purchase the uh, stuff I've done uh, for Skirmisher Publishing LLC. I, I get better royalties through them, so so that's a great place to to shoot some money. And Alex. Oh, that's very sweet of you. I am the Lispy Southern Bell. You can follow me on the Twitter at CrabNebula1914. I also got a YouTube channel. It's called The Trailer Project. Give us a follow, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am charmed by this new character, the, the Southern Bell, who, who is really into being followed on social media. Maybe Smash that's... that uh... button, y'all. The Lispy Southern Bell, y'all. It's just so, so hot and getting all sweaty in here. God damn it. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm gonna go smash that like button. Oh, oh, lick button. Whoops, said the wrong thing there. Okay, oh, we're going in a weird direction. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna shut this down. Shut this down. Shut it down. Shut it down. Uh, next Whoa. week on Sequel Cast Two, we'll be talking about Psycho Three, the one directed by Anthony Perkins, or who like allegedly would get mad if you called that movie camp. 
except it is. Oh, oh that Tony Perkins, he, that, he boils my crawdad. <laughs> For sequel cast two, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. <laughs> See y'all later, Shug. We we all go a little mad for sequels sometimes. <laughs>